welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We're excited about this uh, new episode that we have on. We actually have a colleague of mine at Texas Women's University, Della Malloy Doherty, who is on the music therapy faculty. So she's going to talk to us about uh, what music therapy students really need out of their theory and oral skills classes. So it's a great conversation. Before, though, we, we want to give a little shout out to Jennifer Amox. I hope we're pronouncing your name right. Uh, but uh, Jennifer, uh, thank you so much for the nice email. She's from, uh, she is associate professor of flute and music theory. She sent us a really great email. Uh, thank you for the podcast and uh, for the ideas. And she says that she was listening to us on her commute. So Jennifer, uh, drive safely. All right, get to wherever you're going safely. Uh, and thank you so much for, uh, uh, for listening and for sending us such a nice message. And so, um, Ben, let's uh, get this thing going. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about Della? Sure, Paul. Della Malai doherty has been a board-certified music therapist since 1993. She has worked in acute neurorehabilitation, severe burn rehabilitation, in special education for children with blindness or severe visual impairment and additional disabilities, and in pediatric health care. She is an assistant professor and program coordinator of music therapy at TWU. We are all going to run into clinical situations where we're working with a family and they speak nothing but Arabic and then you're trying to figure out what music they listen to and then it, it, it could very well be something that um, is not in my in my own musical library and and being able to understand those you know being able to identify similarities and differences and and all of that and you know we're just all so kind of deep in that uh, uh, western classical music tradition and um, music therapists are in all of these spaces and places with people who are having their the worst day of their lives or the worst year of their lives and um, being able to understand um, music from uh, cultures that might be very different. So today our very special guest is Dr. Della Malloy Doherty. We're so happy to have you on here. Another TW pioneer uh, here to talk with us about something a little bit different. Uh, talk about teaching students who are music therapy students. And so music therapy is one of those areas that's really growing. A lot of schools are starting to add that um, uh, discipline into their music school. And so it's a, a growing, uh, growing area of interest for a lot of folks. And there are particular things about music therapy students and what they need to be able to do that are unique compared to, I think, a lot of the other types of students that we run into. So we're really excited to talk with you about that, Della. But before we kind of get into it, uh, we thought we'd, we always like to ask our guests just a little bit, just kind of how you got into just music, like what got you into not just maybe music therapy, but just wanting to be a musician for, for your uh, career. Sure. So 
I would say um, maybe about mid-elementary school, maybe about the ages of, oh, eight to 10, um, I became obsessed with listening to music. I had a lot of time to myself um, and my parents had a stereo and they had vinyl. And so I would play records just over and over again, uh, wearing them out. So the American Graffiti soundtrack from the movie, um, the Beatles catalog, uh, Barbara Streisand, the Bee Gees, mm, Village People, ABBA, Barry White. All the late 90s, 1970s. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, which is about the age of my parents and Larry Gatlin and Alabama. So there was a little bit of country in there. Um, but uh, I just, for hours, would just sit and listen to music. And then um, it, it, I was from Kansas. And so back then, and in the state of Kansas, you got to start band in fifth grade. And so I started on the French horn. And after I had to take that home with me a couple of times, I decided I didn't want to play it <laughs> because it was too big. And so I switched, I, I switched to clarinet. And so um, I loved playing the clarinet and played that all the way up until um, high school, which for me would have been ninth grade or 10th grade. And um, I began playing piano at about the same time. Um, I don't have a lot of musical background in my family. Uh, my, my parents are consumers of music and my dad sang in choir and, and was a good singer, uh, but not a whole lot of uh, musical influence there um, in the family. Uh, my mom found me a piano teacher uh, and he was very unique. And he started working with me and I would be playing out of the John Thompson, you know, piano method. Mm -hmm. And he told my mom, he pulled her aside and said, wow, she has an amazing ear for music. And um, I did recitals where I would play classical pieces, but he started taking me on a different journey and he would write out um, Steely Dan tunes and pop music. And he would teach me about scales and modes and and so I've got, all, and I kept all of his notes, you know, he would scratch out, you know, you know, the Dorian mode, and then he would write out these jazz chords. And it was just super, when I look back, it was really interesting. Um, and then I was in um, ninth grade, so I would have been about 13, 14. And um, a couple of guys that I did not know at school, um, uh, you know, this, uh, this one classmate of mine who actually looked like a Harley rider came up and said, I hear you play piano. Do you want to be in our band? And, um, I said, uh, sure. <laughs> and, and so I had this little bitty, it was my first <clears throat> keyboard, which was one of those little bitty Casios. And, um, they wanted me to learn how to play jump by Van Halen and <laughs> sweet home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. And so that's, mm -hmm. that got me introduced to, learning music by ear. I, that's where it all really kind of connected for me. And and from there, I quit band when I got into high school because I thought I was a little too cool for it. Regret that now. But I started playing <laughs> in all these rock bands and was a keyboardist and was learning, you know, all this rock and roll music and playing gigs and, and whatnot. So I share that because I then I come full circle around and I'm in college and I don't know what I want to study. 
And you no, know, so I had not really studied music, you know, in the sense that we think of it, like from ninth grade until so about five or six years where I just kind of dropped out and I was just learning rock tunes by ear. And I was sitting on a bench waiting to take the bus to go home and I saw this marquee on a building that said music education and music therapy. And I just stopped dead in my tracks and I felt like, oh my gosh, what is music therapy? And so that's what got me into studying uh, music much more seriously um, with my degree in music therapy. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. During the pandemic, a lot of the music stores didn't sell out of trumpets and violins. They sold out of digital audio workstations. And you got a lot of people mm -hmm. that are not in high school band or orchestra that are producing music. They're studying music at a really high level. But it's not in the, as you say, in, in the box way. It's not in a conventional way. So it's a great opportunity to reach out um, and kind of connect with those students um, through different means. Yeah. Absolutely. So I imagine that some of our listeners might not really know what music therapy is or what a music therapist does. So could you kind of illuminate that for us? Help us out if it's unclear. Yes. yes. So I like to start defining music therapy by talking about music and, and I use a visual with the students that I teach. Um, I share this with them because I, I've had to teach people over and over again what do, what is music therapy and I've had to do it in a really quick way like when I worked in the pediatric hospital I had doctors or neurosurgeons saying what are you doing with a guitar what's music therapy and so I would pull out this visual and so it's this big circle of music music makes the world go around is what I like to say and and music is everywhere it's very pervasive in our cultures and societies it's it's very easily accessible and we all have those moments in our lives where we feel like music is very therapeutic, that it's our go-to for intense joy or sorrow or rage or whatever it is. And everybody can really understand that. What music therapy is as a discipline is something within that. And so these are people who are trained and certified to use music in a very deliberate way in a healthcare setting or in an educational setting uh, where we get to know a particular person or a group of people and we kind of assess what their needs are and then we determine if music experiences are going to be beneficial to help achieve those needs that they've identified. And so a real fancy kind of formal definition is from the American Music Therapy Association which says that music therapy is the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individualized goals within a therapeutic relationship by a credentialed professional who has completed an approved music therapy program. You know, the big thing is it's not just, you know, making, making music or playing music to do another for another end there is an right. end in itself of just music making right and that is right. the, the 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 therapy right it's not right. just something you know i'm going to listen to something to help something else or something like that. it's not just like and and we do that all the time we may listen to a particular piece of music like if we're really needing to grieve and be sad there might be a particular piece of music that does that for you 
And for me, it's adagio for strings. If I am like really processing a major trauma or something like that, um, I can listen to that and I can cry my heart out and it's very therapeutic. I can get all of that out. But a music therapist in that situation, I would have a relationship with the therapist and they would be helping me in a supportive way through that process. And maybe that piece of music is a part of that relationship. So it's almost like a triangle relationship. So there's me and the music and then there's a therapist. So, and then there's a variety of experiences that we can plan. So we can, we can have the people that we're working with improvise on instruments to help express intense emotions. And so we want to structure that so that they can be really successful, even if they don't know a note of music, that they could access an instrument and improvise on it and have that emotional expression, but they don't need to be trained on it. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. I think a lot of people can relate to some experiences throughout their lives that have a lot of emotion attached to it. And that can be a lot of different range of emotions, you know, but I think a lot of times somebody may not read any music at all, but yet they know exactly the tune that they walked down the aisle to at their wedding, or they know exactly what was played at their granddad's funeral, Um, you know, because it's such a heightened emotional moment that you somehow have this memory, this very clear memory of everything that was kind of involved in that moment. And music is 99.9% of the time right there uh, with you through the highs and the lows, as, as we all know, mm-hmm. especially yes. those of us that are probably listening to the, to the pod. <laughs> right. And so what's important about that is that if, um, so music therapists work with vulnerable people, people that are needing some sort of help with health or whatnot. Um, and so we are trained to assess so that we know if a particular song or piece of music might be really a trigger that we don't want to go there mm. with at the moment, right. or maybe we do. And it, and it all depends on that relationship. So if you don't know that information, you could mistakenly bring some sort of music forth and it has a really negative response and it can actually cause harm. And so music therapists mm. are trained to be constantly assessing so they know when to use music and what music to use and and then when not to use music too Hmm. so I can imagine that that's kind of a hard thing to do I'm thinking about um, Mm -hmm. so my dad passed away this fall and at the time I was sorry yeah um, at the time I was performing Christmas concerts with the symphony here in Dallas and there was this one we did this beautiful arrangement of still 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 and um, I remember the night before I flew out to go home to see him um, when he was kind of in his last days there we're singing this arrangement and all of a sudden I'm there in this rehearsal with all these professional colleagues and I was about to totally fall apart and I couldn't have predicted it at all like I've sung that arrangement many times. It's not even the first year that we've done that arrangement. I know it very well. Um, but it's just like something about it. There's a line in it. This is something like guardian angels watch you while you're sleeping or something like that. And so something about it just hit me in that spot. And I can imagine it would be very interesting to be with people on a journey like that, trying to figure out what is that piece of music that's going to get that release that they probably really need at the right moment. Yes. 
yes indeed that's powerful jen so i guess we could turn back to music therapy students and Mm kind of narrow our our discussion to to music therapy students can you kind of describe for us maybe the average you know music therapy student now it's probably hard to do and you don't want certainly don't want to put the whole Mm -hmm. category of students into one category but if you had to make some generalizations I guess um kind of what makes them tick and how would you describe you know your your music therapy students maybe that you've had from your experience sure well one thing that I do as a teacher now is when I'm teaching that very first introductory class that students are taking and they're excited, maybe I want to be a music therapist, and so they're taking an introductory class just to learn all about it. And so I ask them, what's your story that brings you here? And I would say 99% of students who are pursuing music therapy will say, I love music, it has been so important to me, and I want to help others. So hands down, those are the answers that we get. That they themselves have experienced that powerful connection with music and that they want to be in some sort of a helping profession. Many students will say, I was thinking about medical school, but I don't want to give up my music study. I want to bring them together. So medical school is one. Psychology is another one. I really was interested in psychology with the idea of maybe being a counselor in some way, but I, this music part is just not letting me go and I really want to keep studying and I really want to see how I can bring these things together. They tend to be people people. Um, and, and this became very evident during the pandemic because all of our courses and all of our teaching went online. It, music therapy students struggle because they are so used to being together physically in a group and supporting each other and going to class, going to keyboard class, going to theory class. There's such an important element of being there with each other, struggling together, whatever it is. Um, uh, They're sensitive, but I think music students in general are very sensitive. They're talented. Um, And then another thing that I think is pretty interesting that a lot of students have told me is that they love music so much, but they know they don't want to be a performer Mm. or they don't want to teach, Mm -hmm. but they just know there's something in music that is really pulling them. Um, And then, oh, one more, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, music therapy students are... They will be vocalists, they will be flutists, they will be percussionists, they will be cellists, they will be piano players like me. So they play all different instruments as their primary instrument. Um, And so those that are not vocalists as their primary instrument, then there's a little bit of hesitancy uh, there tends to be because they're not used to singing. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's that, they, they might be pretty shy about singing, which would come up in music theory class when you have to do sight singing. So, mm-hmm. yep. I, I agree with you, Della, you know, working with so many of my students are music therapy students and that they just have such a heart for people and a heart to help people. And I think that really um, affects that dynamic of the music department. I mean, it's not a group of competitive 
kids. And we have some performers and things like that, but when so many of your students are music therapy students and are wanting to help others and kind of are naturally inclined to root and support, it creates a really unique environment mm-hmm. to have those students in there because it, it creates like a, a family. Um, and I, I think it, we're really happy to have and lucky to have so many of those students. And that reminds me, Paul, one thing that I've noticed too in the pandemic is we have all of these, you know, empaths, compassionate mm-hmm. people who are so dedicated to support everyone around them and needing that support that they've experienced a lot of distress and compassion fatigue um, with the pandemic. That's, mm-hmm. you know, so these students really are carrying around a lot of, a lot of weight. And so if we find ourselves teaching theory or oral skills to these students, you know, what are some of the concepts that are most applicable and maybe some things that maybe aren't as applicable to, you know, our music therapy students for what they're going to be doing, you know, in their careers? So um, I want to preface this with saying that um, I reached out to my two colleagues whom I love very much, so um, Rebecca West and Lauren DeMeo, just to get a little bit of, of what they thought about some of these things. Um, and so um, concepts that are important. Um, chord progressions and being able to visually identify, auditorily identify, hear them, hear them in all the different keys, um, are super, super important and applicable. Um, because what happens is you're in music theory class and fast forward to three years later and you are um, in your first job and you are singing Amazing Grace to a hospice patient who is dying. Then, and you start to sing the song and then they start, they, they kind of come alive a little bit and they start to sing with you, mm-hmm. but they're in a different key. And so you, so what we do all the time is we very quickly assess, oh, I'm playing in C, but they're actually singing in F. And so being able to switch that on a dime, because that's really what it's about. It's not about me doing this song. I'm not performing it. I am facilitating a really important mm-hmm experience that's happening here and so you have to be able to very quickly oh different key and find where they are and and transpose so that that idea of transposing and chord progressions um lauren DeMeo said transposing in circle of fifths um so yeah. how how to listen to songs and get the chord progressions um, i don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like more not just chord progressions for their own sake but more of like as they go with the melody like yes. Harmonization. Okay. yes, 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 um, you know, hearing um, conflict and resolution in music is really important. So understanding, um, you know, uh, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart and I'm losing the word um, resolution. So like, you know, the five, seven to the one chord, um, those types of things, being able to hear those and being able to use them deliberately. So, for example, if you were working with someone who, let me think of a, 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 a thing that can happen often is if somebody has a brain injury 
and they are having trouble speaking. And so you will use a really overlearned, too common song to help stimulate automatic speech patterns hmm. um, because music is processed diffusely in the brain. And so to understand that whole idea of the leading tone or of the, of the dominant going to the where you're going to land, you might sing, um, and by the way, Gabby Giffords, the Arizona representative who was yeah. shot in the mm -hmm. head several years ago, her husband amazingly um, videotaped her entire rehabilitation, and there was so much music therapy mm. in that. And so they're, they're trying to get her to say the word light, and she can't say the word light. She keeps saying chicken or spoon because she's having so many word-finding problems because of mm -hmm. the brain damage. But then they start to sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So at the very end, just that whole, let it shine, let it shine, let it, you know, it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. It has to. And so for, for music theory students to really understand that pull from a theoretical uh, perspective, I think is really important. We use that a lot. Mm. So. Wow. That's uh, reaffirming what? for me because I talk about that all the time. Like, where does this note want to go? We're, we're yes. learning augmented six chords mm -hmm. right now. And, like, and you're uh, feeling that stretch that augmented six interval out to the octave, you know, and, and hearing these relationships and how these notes kind of have desires, right, to, to move in certain places. Mm -hmm. And it's so applicable, right, to a music therapist. Mm -hmm. Big time. And then I think um, understanding intervals is really important. Um, you know, uh, being able to sing them and to identify them orally is huge. Yeah, I was wondering, sometimes people just go up to me and they'll sing a tune and they'll expect me to identify the tune. You know, I don't know if that happens <laughs> at all in your yes. job, where people it are does. remembering a certain song, <laughs> they're singing it, and you oh yeah, you know, dum da dum da da And it may be accurate, you know, I don't want to like... You know, rag on people. It might on the not podcast be. Here, but it may not be. It may be off by a note. And then you have to piece together. For the most part, this formation of pitches resembles X tune. You know, and you kind of have to put that together. I imagine you've probably run across some of that, right? Somebody's trying to think of a tune oh, yeah. that you're trying to recreate, oh, yeah. and it's kind of there, but it's also kind of not. Yep. So, yeah, it's tough. That's I'm, tough. Um, I would also say that it's important to, and, and I didn't get this so much in my music theory classes, which I love, by the way. I turned out to be a total music theory nerd. I loved it so much. Um, but um, being able to hear and understand those kinds of structures across cultures and how to tell similarities and differences, and that was from uh, Rebecca West. Um, so, and yeah. That's a common theme on this podcast is learning how to like not just look at like specific subsets of Western classical music, but to also expose students to lots of different the same idea strung through a lot of different styles and you know, yeah. cultures and things like that. Um, so talking about broader things like rhythm and then talking about how that shows up in all these different styles instead of being so pinpointed on one specific style. And it sounds like that could be really helpful for our music therapy students as yes. well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, not everybody knows Happy Birthday. Not everybody knows mm -hmm. right. the national anthem. 
of the U.S. Right. You know, I mean, that's one <laughs> tune that's probably common, but you can't walk in there and assume things. You need to right. take each patient, I'm sure, on their own terms and address their, right. as you yes. said, be an informed uh, music therapist. My uh, motto that I always bark at my students is, you never assume because you know why you don't assume, but you always <laughs> assess. You're always assessing. You're always gathering information. You're always observing for responses, listening for little, oh, yeah, that was the song that they played at my dad's funeral. And, you know, th mm -hmm. those things are super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even more than music theory, like aural skills and those abilities are really, you know, at the heart mm -hmm. of, of a successful music therapist. And those really need to be, you know, hammered home uh, for them to be successful. Sure. Uh, yeah. There's so much like on the fly uh, figuring out somebody says, oh, I really like this song. Well, it's a song you've never heard. You don't have time to go find the music. Hope maybe you could find a lead sheet. So being able to read a lead sheet and chord symbols mm -hmm. and whatnot. But if not, um, listening to it and getting the chords, uh, you know, figuring out the chords by ear. We do so much with pop music, children's music, religious music, and I would say uh, Christian, uh, you know, Amazing Grace hymns that the, that kind of stuff. Country, um, hip hop, rap, um, some Spanish music. Um, and so being able to identify pa chord patterns, chord, um, chord changes, you know, like the, the, uh, one, four, five, one, or, you know, the, the one minor six minor two, you know, um, to five, seven to one, being able to recognize those really quickly just by hearing yeah, We just them. did the, oh, uh, that's Bell in my theory too this week, yeah. you know, and I think that applies to, I don't know how many tunes, but enough where you could probably consider it worth learning, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then another thing that I wanted to share is um, using the elements of music to convey um, information. So um, I had a two, two songs that I wanted to share with you um, just to give you an idea of uh, one is kind of working really quickly on the fly to address a clinical need. And then the other one is um, we're going to be teaching um, a particular movement to children who are having trouble with coordinated movement. How can we use the elements of music to reflect the desired movement? Mm -hmm. So the first one I'm going to play um, was with a young child who has autism. And um, so I'm in a session with this child, and then their parent is in the session. And when music is over, this child really has a hard time, does not want it to be over. And so uh, the mom at one session said, gosh, I wish we had a song that just said, okay, it's over, it's time to get into the stroller. And so I wrote one really quickly on the spot and it worked so well that she asked me to record it for her and have it on her phone so she could use it with them all the time. <laughs> and so I thought I would play that. We're all done, we're all done. It's time to go, time to go. Let's go in the stroller. 
we're all done, let's go. So it was, you know, we're all done, which is that minor third that goes so well with lullabies. In fact, that's like the, that's the go-to interval for lullabies. It is like present in every culture. Um, but that's that calming, oh, da, da, da. it's time to go, it's time to go. And then the last lyric is, um, it's time to get in the stroller or something like that. And so it was done on the fly, but being able to use those compositional um, repetition, small intervals, you know, for a children's song, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the other one I'll try to play um, is using the elements of music to help convey a movement. So I, I worked on this project and I recorded a bunch of music for working on some movement competence with children that have disabilities, including vision impairment. And the movement that the people wanted the kids to do was is to fly their arms up and down. Oh, no, no, different song. They wanted to be uh, do knee bends. I'm going to share a different song with you. And so that's this one right here. Bend your knees, hands on thighs. Let's straight bend, straight bend, straight bend, straight bend. Straight bend, straight bend, straight bend, straight bend. Here we go. Faster, monkey bouncing up, down, up, down. Monkey bouncing up, down, up, down. Stop, we're done. So these are children that have um, cognitive disabilities and visual impairments. And so I did the elements of music so I, you can hear me go straight, bend, straight. So it's, you know, having your legs straight and then bending down. They wanted them to be bouncing and bending their knees. And I use, you know, ah, bum, bum, bum as a directional cue musically. Yep. And then I have it go faster. Do, 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 do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then... Um, uh, so using, there's a different note, a different chord that goes with each position. So they're getting a lot of musical input to, to kind of tell them spatially where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I loved it. And the descending line going down for, oh, we're about yeah. to bend down and come back up. Yes. Right, exactly. Yes. I mean, it makes yes. perfect sense. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I really like it. It sounds like a project of musical embodiment you know like you could combine forces i know this one of my former students is doing this big corpus study on like embodiment and like what musical motions possibly could mm. go with certain like mm -hmm. motifs you know kind of like the side right. like in an embodiment perspective and i was right. like just thinking of those kinds of things listening to some of these some of these tunes it's really cool mm -hmm. thanks mm -hmm. and so like improvisation songwriting you know those those elements are so important for music therapists so we need to be doing those types of activities and encouraging you know more of those opportunities because improvising is scary and it's mm -hmm. <laughs> scary for everybody um, but that's you're kind of doing that all the time you're always just kind of going moment to moment and responding and assessing as you said uh, to what what needs to be done for, with the client so one of the things that I've noticed um, as as I've been I've, I've been at TW I think this is my six or six seventh year maybe um 
and I didn't fully realize that until I started working with all these music therapy students is that they really have to be the best musicians in the school. Because as you mentioned, they not only have to sing, but they have to be able to improvise, they have to be able to write, and they have to play multiple instruments well, well enough to, to, um, to work with these clients and to also hit these outcomes that are not musical. So like these, you know, that uh, maybe a doctor or a nurse is wanting them, these clients to uh, reach these physical outcomes. Well, you're having to think about that as well as play. So you can't be focusing so much on your playing that you're not thinking about these other outcomes. So you could you talk just a little bit about how, you know, music therapists really have to be these master musicians and all the things that they have to be able to learn to do when they're in college. Sure, you bet. You kind of read my mind. I was looking at my notes and and uh, wanted to speak to that. So, you know, when you become a college student in a music school, in a music department, you have uh, your primary instrument. And if you're lucky like me, uh, it's piano or voice, <laughs> because those are two that seem to streamline pretty well with all of the stuff that music therapists have to do, because... Um, you have to take all of the class piano to uh, be competent. So let me back up a little bit. Every music student, no matter what they're majoring in, has a primary instrument. So it's voice, piano, um, it's a orchestral instrument, it's you know percussion, it's band, whatever. And music therapy students are expected to do the same thing. And so they have to do juries, they have to have private lessons, they have to give a capstone recital. Um, mm -hmm. And that was pretty wild for me coming back in college. I had not read music and I hadn't played any classical music for six years. And so I was scrambling to mm -hmm. even get together an audition and uh, had to do juries, had to learn all my scales. Um, had to sight read, all of that, and then had to give a capstone recital. So music therapists, therapy students have to do that, but then also they have a whole section of clinical musicianship that they have to master, and that is singing clinically and competently and learning how to take care of your voice, playing guitar, playing piano, and I'm not talking about playing you know, Mozart, I'm talking about playing uh, Stand By Me by Benny King, and then um, going on to play um, Forever and Ever Amen by Randy Travis, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and being able to accompany yourself, sing, transpose on the spot, play in different chord uh, patterns, so you're not just going boom chick, boom chick all the time, but you're learning how to arpeggiate, et cetera, et cetera. And then you learn all that on guitar. So you have to have this level of clinical musicianship to play and accompany yourself or lead a group singing, you know, because then after I'm playing Randy Travis on the piano, I might be picking up my guitar and playing some Beatles tunes and, and then having to transpose those on the spot if I'm not in the right key for whoever I'm working with. Um, so being able and then being able to do that in very large rooms with 20 people and then being able to do that in neonatal intensive care unit room with a premature infant and their parents. So um, it's, it's really vast. Um, so if you have music therapy students and they're pretty stressed out, that's probably why. <laughs> because they've got, yeah. well, they're in choir, so they've got all of that. They're a voice major, mm -hmm. so they're learning their repertoire. 
they're in music theory, so they're trying to learn all of that. And then they're <laughs> in guitar and piano. And then they're in a clinical training situation where they're going to work with hospice patients. And so you want to bring your best self, but your best musical self. I mean, because that's the real deal. That's what they're doing all at the same time while they're in college working on this degree. So it's pretty, uh, no wonder they're stressed out. <laughs> it's a lot. Right. <laughs> And that's why I feel like I was so fortunate. I had done so much performing and I had done so much by ear that the, the only thing I really, my big challenges were picking up the guitar and getting comfortable with my voice and singing. But, you know, man, I could, I could rattle off Beatles tunes. I could, I could pull out some Journey. I could pull out some, you know, Alicia Keys, whatever. I could do all that on the keyboard, but having to be able to do that on the guitar and and, and being able to sing, but uh, you know, a lot of students are, are battling all of that at the same time. So. Yeah, yeah, it's this amazing like cross section of musicianship, and then that's only kind of half the battle. Even when you get all of those musicianship aspects down, you're like halfway there at that point. You know, <laughs> that, that's mind blowing. I think I don't know if I would have survived. Luckily, I was music ed. Shoo. I don't like people enough to be a music therapist, so I would have never gone into music therapy. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking as you were saying that, that all of those skills you described are really beneficial for all of our music majors. It's not just music therapy students who need to learn how to improvise and melody harmonize and perform on accompanying instruments. I mean, I can think of a lot of singers I know who wish they were better pianists or wish they could, you know, pick up the guitar and play with themselves so that they didn't always have to pay someone to do it. I mean, some of it's just practical. Um, yeah. So, that makes yeah, sense. I can see the benefit of all of those skills for everyone in the room, not just the music therapy majors. Yeah, that's a great point. And we had definitely kind of added this, uh, a bunch of lead sheet notation into our core. And the impetus there was actually coming from jazz. But, you know, a lot of us, when we talked about it, we were like, wait a minute, this is really just like for everyone, you know, to be able yeah. to play different tunes. And when you look on the internet for a tune, yeah. what comes up? Well, it's the lead sheets with lyrics a lot yep. of the time. Um, yep. So just to be able to do that, and we've done a lot of, like mm -hmm. I said before in previous episodes, a lot of leading, leading read sheets. Wow. Reading lead sheets. Um, <laughs> and then also critiquing lead sheets that you find on yeah. the internet. Some of them are straight up wrong. So you can actually kind of use yeah. that too to discuss, yes. you know, listen to this. Is that exactly what you're hearing or not? You know? Oh, Ultimate fun. Guitar Tab has a lot of boohoo's <laughs> in it. And the, the, and the music therapy students will always be talking about that, like, oh, well, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good resource, though. Good resource. Yeah, it Definitely is. need some tweaking. So thinking back on your own theory education and, and um, what kind of things maybe could we theory teachers maybe not emphasize as much or maybe lose a bit that would uh, be helpful for music therapists? Because, of course, to add more improv, add more composition, add more playing, we, you know, we have a finite number of class periods, we have a finite number of minutes in a class, we can't add more without taking some things out. So what do you think, you know, if you had your, if you could do whatever you wanted, like this, this, we could just take this out, or maybe not so much have this in those theory or oral skills classes. Um, well, I, I think I've got to kind of 
brag a little bit now because um, we are very spoiled having you, Paul. Um, oh, keep going, keep going. Because, <laughs> because two things. First of all, so we're all in the same hallway and we will hear Paul teaching a theory class and we, all we hear barreling out is something from Encanto or Frozen or some, uh, I think it was Frozen recently that I heard. Yeah. And yep. so relating theory concepts and skills to um, other music that you wouldn't typically do that in a music theory class. Like that never happened for me in music theory class. I'm not complaining because like I said, I was a total theory nerd. I ate it up and was, you know, uh, I really excelled at it. But um, so more of that connection to things that music therapists would be doing and seeing those kind of parallels and those connections, because often music therapy, music theory students will say, who are studying music therapy, are you sure I have to do this class? And I'll say, yes, I promise you do. I promise. You sure I can't get out of it? I'm sure you cannot get out of it. No, trust me, trust me. So that, but, but Paul does that. And so um, I think that's really super. And then, um, I would love for there to be a little more of a, um, again, just getting out of the Western classical music tradition and exposing them to things outside of that because uh, we are all gonna run into clinical situations where we're working with a family and they speak nothing but Arabic and then you're trying to figure out what music they listen to and then it, it, it could very well be something that um, is not in my, uh, in my own musical library. And, and being able to understand those, you know, being able to identify similarities and differences and, and all of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're just all so kind of deep in that, um, uh, just that uh, Western classical music tradition and um, music therapists are in all of these spaces and places with people who are having their the worst day of their lives or the worst year of their lives and um, being able to understand um, music from uh, cultures that might be very different that are not from that western classical music tradition especially in texas I mean, mm -hmm. I have worked with so many people in the state of Texas who, first of all, I've learned tons about music from Mexico mm -hmm. and Central America. Um, that's important. Um, but then also I've met people from all over the world. I had, a, I had a patient, a pediatric patient who came over for a heart procedure who was from uh, a country in Africa. And um, so it, it happens a lot. And so it just be, that would be my wish. Mm -hmm. I love it. In those I situations, how do you, yeah. In those situations, how do you find music from another culture to use? You know, because we're all hunting for those examples for our classrooms too. But I can imagine in the moment, like how do you come up with something right. useful? Yeah, that, uh, it's very challenging. Um, it depends so much on, so for example, this uh, young person that I worked with 
was here alone, was not with a parent, had a sponsor mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, paid for her to come over and have this really necessary uh, heart procedure. I can't remember specifically what it was. And she was sedated. And so it was trying mm -hmm. to find that time where I could ask her, you know, what do you like to listen to? Um, and yeah, you just have to be super careful. Um, yeah, I, I feel it. It's, it's super challenging. <laughs> and be open-minded and be, and yes. that is, I mean, we asked, I think it was right. Richard Desenord on the rapid fire. What was the number one trait you need to have as a music theorist or something? And I think he said open-mindedness. And I thought, yes, because if you're not open-minded, then where do you even right. put, where do you even seek, uh, um, you know, this cross cultural competency? You're not even kind of willing uh, open the other thing to consider the other thing that makes that tricky is music therapists are entering into this space with people who are in very vulnerable positions and so immediately there is a power differential and so hmm. what I have seen often is if you just go in and you ask they will very much kind of defer back to you because hmm. they feel hmm. like because they're the patient and you're the expert and so that gets tricky too I don't know how many families I worked with who were undocumented um, people who were here who had literally walked from Central America up into Austin mm -hmm. where I was working and um, to ask you know well you know what kind of music um, would you like to have sung to your premature infant that you just had or you know do you have music that's important to you and they just first of all being terrified to talk to you about it but then to say oh whatever mm. you think is best mm. so mm. again it just kind of goes back to music therapists really having to have that trusting relationship with with someone where they would actually share well it you know I would really like you know uh, this song or whatever because it's important mm. so. Well, this has been such a treat, Della, to talk with you and uh, just you. learn more about music therapy. I mean, I think it's an incredible profession, and it's so exciting to work uh, with you and, and Lauren and, and Rebecca, our colleagues and our students. Before we let we go, we do like to do some rapid-fire questions, all right? Okay. And so these are just <laughs> off the cuff. All right. These are little hot takes, all right? Okay. And so we don't plan these. Um, but I promised you that we weren't going to ask you to spell augmented six chords. Okay. okay? So nothing, <laughs> nothing super high level theory going on here. Okay. All right. But just, um, just your thoughts on, on something. Okay. Ben or Jen, do you have something? I have something. Okay. okay go ahead. I'm Jen. ready. Okay. All right. So what is your number one tip to people who want to learn to improvise across different styles of music? Number one tip for people improvising across different styles of music. Um, mm -hmm. I would say, um, uh, so what kind of improvisation? Uh, improvising on a vocal. piano. Vocal. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Ooh. Um, vocal improv. I would say um, using your voice in just all of the, just the wide range of possibilities that you could do. All of the um, cool sounds, scary sounds, funny sounds that you can make with your voice and getting super, 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 super comfortable with your voice. And then, um, mm. yeah. I think it starts with just being really comfortable with your voice, which so many people are not. Right. 
mm. by the way. So it's very mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I, I, I will go. All right. Okay. So uh, my question for you is 50 years down the road, what musical artist um, is going to be in our, you know, theory or, you know, music history books as something that we are going to be, you know, studying their, their music, you think? Danny Elfman. Oh, <laughs> I like that one. I'm, there we go. I'm biased. That's a new one. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's already in there with the tritone. Lydia, yeah. <laughs> Lydia, yeah. That's great. All right, Ben? Yeah, mine is kind of related to Paul's. It's not the same question, but it, it is kind of related. So if you think of all of our students right now, our college students, when they are all in senior living facilities, um, what is going to be the number one requested tune of, of music therapists? Okay, oh. let me give that some thought. The number one hit of senior living in 50 years. Okay. I, I feel like I'm kind of cheating on this because it happened in class Tuesday. Um, I have the students tell me um, a song that um, they would like me to play in class, and it's anonymous, and I'll play it at the beginning of class. And Tuesday okay. I played a song by 21 Pilots, and... Most of the class was, and they were singing it, and and then I re- remembered that they're all about the same age as my daughter, who's 24, and how important 21 Pilots is for that age group. So I'm going to go out on a limb, and this might be a little off, but I'm going to say Ride by 21 Pilots. It's awesome. It's awesome. I think that's so cool. I think that's such a great question, because <laughs> it, it reminds is. me of... Um, I was watching, um, I think David Huron, he's a music cognition uh, uh, professor at Ohio State, and he was talking about the nostalgic bulge, which is this period like between like 12 and like 25, mm-hmm. and basically like the, the music that you hear, that the music that came out like when you're around 16, like right in the middle of that mm-hmm. area, is the music that when you are old, you're gonna come back to as, you know, important, as the best, or maybe kind of have you have an emotional connection to. So I think it's so interesting to think about, you know, yeah, 21 Pilots or Taylor Swift mm-hmm. or any of these artists, Olivia Rodrigo, who's going to be like being played in nursing homes 50 years from now, because that's the music that, you know, was connecting uh, to uh, the, our, our students right now. <laughs> yeah. I could be a little off because I think Ride in particular is probably on kind of the later end of this age group right now, but. That's good. Well, we'll, we'll come back in 50 years All right. to see uh, if you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll be on your fourth hip by then. Yes. By then. <laughs> I hope not. Don't. <laughs> so as we wrap up, could you just maybe tell our listeners a little bit, maybe kind of things that you're working on maybe as, as your own research area and maybe how folks could kind of find you and, and reach out to you if they have more questions? Sure. So um, I'm the assistant professor and program director at Texas Women's University. And so you can find me easily if you go to twu.edu and you could, um, I would just put in music therapy in the search bar 
and I'll come up that way because my name is hard to spell. It's long and hyphenated. Um, and uh, so uh, I've got uh, three different research areas that I'm um, kind of uh, got my toes dipped into right now. Um, the first one is um, my colleagues and I are very, very passionate about ethics and ethical dilemmas and ethical situations that come up in music therapy practice um, and with music therapy students because, again, we're, we're around people who are vulnerable and there's, there's always a possibility of kind of lines getting crossed and blurred and, and ethical dilemmas coming up. And so we've got, some, we've got a line of research that's kind of exploring that. Um, I spent 14 years working with blind and visually impaired people and so that's my second kind of line of research that I'm interested in. Uh, my dissertation research was about um, a, uh, how an external um, rhythm cue can help uh, or can have an immediate impact on the walking patterns of people who are uh, blind travelers who travel with a cane for mobility purposes. And then my third one is that I spent time working at a pediatric hospital and I did a lot with rehabilitation. So young children um, or teenagers that um, maybe were in a car accident or had a brain tumor. And so they were relearning some really crucial skills like walking and talking and, and whatnot. And so I'm uh, getting ready to um, uh, rekindle that interest with Cook Children's in Fort Worth. I've got some connections there and I'm getting ready to go visit them. So hopefully that will turn into my third line of research. So, Well, you are on track for that tenure. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be great. You'll be great. Thank you. You'll be great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so so much fun to get to chat with you. And, and uh, Thank kind of, you. And I think I it's... I gotta say, my daughter, who's 24, got a double degree in percussion performance and theory, and she listens to this podcast, and she loves you all, and she loves Paul. So, uh, but yeah, she she listens to your podcast also, and yeah, that's awesome. That's fun. Thanks for listening. What's her name? Lauren, Uh right? Yeah. Thanks for listening, Lauren. We love you, Lauren. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.